Would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2? John chapter 2 in your Bibles. I'm so glad to be with you last time uh, I was supposed to be with you. I uh, tested positive for coronavirus. I took a test this time just to make sure, you know, I wasn't going to, and I'm, I'm negative. And uh, if I was going to be positive again, I was going to lose my mind because I've had it three times, which feels like at least three times too many to me. But um, I'm so, so glad to be able to be with you in person. And, uh, <clears throat> oh, my mic's not on. The green light is on. Does that mean, uh, does that mean off or does that mean, Okay. Well, do I need to repeat all that again, or did you, hear, uh, did you hear what I said? All right, well, it's so good to be with you. I, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting because, um, well, I'm, I'm really starting to know who you are, and so I'm very, very grateful to be here. You know, it's, um, it, so when I first came here, you know, it felt like going to another, another place to go and visit, and there were very nice people there. Uh, and now it feels like going to a second home, you know, when, uh, when I come here. And so I'm re- just really, really thankful to be with you. I'm so excited that we get a chance to take a look at the Gospel of John together. I'm going to be looking at John chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole chapter along with you. And um, I, uh, I've been working through the Gospel of John at Orland Park CRC. We're going to continue to do that over the course of the next... Uh, I don't know, 25 weeks or so, and, uh, and so I'll probably be preaching on John every time I come here, uh, and uh, it's just a glorious, glorious, glorious section of Scripture. And so John chapter 2, it's the whole thing today. I'm going to invite you to look along with me, and we're going to read the entire chapter of John chapter 2. On the third day, There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with the disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Amen. Would you pray along with me? Father, this is your word that we've just heard, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we know that your word is living and active, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It judges the thoughts and inclinations of the heart. And as your word is alive, we pray that you might make it, uh, use it to make us alive today. Enliven us with these words about our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I, I, we all know that unless the Holy Spirit empowers this message, unless it's uh, offered in, to your glory, that it's just, it's just a bunch of noises. And so we pray that, that this would be a message offered to Christ Jesus for your glory, that you'd be glorified in and through it. We pray that the Holy Spirit would empower it, and we pray that it would be a great benefit to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder this morning if you've ever asked God for a sign. I've wondered if you thought, if only God would give me this specific sign, if only he would do this thing for me, I would certainly believe. I would believe entirely. I've spoken with people who aren't Christians. I've spoken with sometimes people who are Christians but are in a difficult time within their life, and they have said to me, if God would give me a sign, I would know for sure that he was real. If he would just do this specific thing, I would know that he loved me. I'd be convinced of Christianity if God would only give me this sign. I know I've, I've approached God before and been like, God, would you give me this sign? There's a, there's a recording artist named DMX, and he uh, has some music that you should maybe not Google after this message, but he has one song that's called... Lord, give me a sign, which is always striking to me because uh, it's, not, it's not sort of in line with his regular catalog of music, and he begins by quoting scripture, and then the song begins in earnest with him crying out, Lord, give me a sign, and then he ends each verse with that phrase, Lord, give me a sign, and he ends each chorus with that phrase, Lord, give me a sign. And I was reading about that song in, I think it was Rolling Stone, and they talked about how the song demonstrated the full measure of his passion and rawness and pure emotional honesty. Lord, give me a sign. If only I could have a sign from you, I'd believe. And maybe this has been you in the past. It's been me in the past. Maybe it's you right now. You've been like, God, things are tough. And if you could just give me a sign, I would believe. Well, for everyone who has in the past or is right now looking for a sign, I've got some good news for you today, and that is this passage of Scripture gives us two major signs that tell us about who Jesus is. There are two major signs that should encourage us to believe, that should motivate us to believe. We don't want to miss the signs here in John chapter 2. 
And just as we start, I want to re- uh, just want to point out the feature of the repetition of that word in this passage. Because when I first read it, and second read it, and, and read it for the third time, I missed it. And then somebody pointed out to me in study that this is a, a repeated refrain in the passage. So let me just draw your attention to this word as it shows up in John chapter 2. Look with me at John chapter 2, verse 11. It says this in verse 11, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Then if you look uh, at, uh, at verse 18, the Jews say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And then if you look in verse 23, it says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing three times. It's repeated, sign, sign, everywhere a sign. And if you're looking for a sign, and if you're like the crowd that was hoping for a sign so that you might believe in Jesus, we have some for you this morning. Let me point them out. There are two major signs. The first one is a wedding sign, and the second one's a funeral sign. So look with me first at the wedding sign. Jesus and his disciples are at a wedding in Cana in Galilee. It's very likely a relative of the Lord Jesus because this is before any of his miracles or any of his teaching. Jesus was just a carpenter at this point in terms of profession. People didn't know about him more broadly, so when there's a wedding, it's very likely this was a relative, a close relative that invited Jesus. And some of his disciples came along with, and something embarrassing happens. They run out of wine. This would have been a socially embarrassing thing at this particular time. The groom's family was tasked with throwing the wedding banquet, and if you ran out of wine at a wedding party, the bride's family could actually sue the groom's family for damages because the wedding party was not what it was supposed to be if you ran out of wine. So they've run out of wine, a social embarrassment, potentially a costly one. Tim Keller notes that this very likely talks to us about the reliability of the Bible, to, to tell us that the first miracle that Jesus does is a miracle to keep a family member from some social embarrassment. Keller notes that in mythological tellings of messianic hopefuls, their first sign is always the most impressive, the most archetypal, the sign that everyone would have pointed to and been like, that's truly amazing. But with Jesus, it's a sign that saves a relative from social embarrassment, very likely indicating to us the reliability of the Scripture. This is just the first one, and so it's the first one that John tells us about. And Mary, when the wine runs out, knows that her son is the right person to turn to. In expectation, she says, they've run out of wine. Now, Jesus understands that Mary is looking to him to do something about it. She's not coming just to gossip about it. Can you believe that they've run out of wine? That's terrible. She's not coming to complain that they've run out of wine. She's coming expecting Jesus to do something because he responds with, you know, my hour has not yet come. And that's a confusing statement, isn't it? Why would Jesus respond with, my hour has not yet come? Well, throughout John, every time the hour of the Lord Jesus is referenced, it's always in reference to something specific. It always references the cross. Jesus talking about his hour always points our attention to that hour where he'll be crucified. Sometimes it's understood in broader terms. It's, it's the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Sometimes the death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. But it's his hour where he accomplishes what he was sent to the world to do. And so she asks him to perform this sign. And he says, my hour, hasn't, my hour hasn't come yet. 
Why would he say that? Why would he say that in response? Well, there are people wiser than me who comment on this, wondering what he was relating at the, uh, how he was relating this wine at the banquet to the cross. Let me give to you a couple of ideas that people will talk about. Maybe one of these is the right one. Maybe all of them in different sorts of ways. This may have been a clever literary device used by John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to take something that Jesus says and indicate the fact that this book is going to crescendo at this hour, this hour that's going to come. It's going to crescendo at the cross. The, there are other people who note that Jesus is, um, that th- this time when he goes to the cross, he's going to institute the Lord's Supper. He's going to say, this new covenant, this is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so maybe Jesus is recognizing, well, this miracle asking for wine, it's going to relate to this last supper, that this last supper that's going to happen at my hour. It may be that because throughout the Old Testament, when there are prophecies of the Messiah, the prophecy always includes the Messiah bringing in feasting and celebrating and an abundance of wine. A prophecy of the one who's going to come and redeem the people of God always comes with a prophecy that he's going to come with wine. And so it may be that Jesus is saying, you know, it's not my hour to demonstrate the fact that I am the Messiah yet. It may have simply been that Jesus recognized that his first miracle would begin the earthly ministry that would end irrevocably at the cross. In any case, Jesus first says that his hour's not yet come, indicating to us that it's not time for his death and crucifixion, his resurrection yet, but still he's an obedient son. And he listens to his mother and he performs the miracle. He changes water into wine. And the miracle that he performs is amazing. Gallons and gallons of the best wine that astounds the master of the feast. What are you doing? He says, you've kept the hundred point wine for the point when people have already drunk freely. There are gallons and gallons of it. Now, I don't know if this miracle makes you uncomfortable. It can be uncomfortable. It can be difficult for Christians to talk about alcohol. And the reason for this is so many of us have seen abuses of it, and we have recognized how damaging abuses of the use of alcohol can be, how it can tear up families, how it can disrupt relationships between husbands and wives, children and parents, about how it can lead to absent fathers or mothers or wives or husbands. There have been a lot of people who have been damaged by it. And so, you know, it's important for us to be careful when we talk about it. The Bible never allows for the abuse of alcohol. The Scripture tells us that we shouldn't get drunk on wine because that leads to debauchery. It says instead be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. It reminds us that if we're full of drink, we're not leaving space to be full of the Holy Spirit. That's the call of the Christian. I think it's important to name that. I remember talking to one girl when I was at Wheaton College and uh, and. She just commented, she was like, you know, I will never have any alcohol in my life. I think it's wrong for any person to ever consume any alcohol. And, uh, and a, f- a friend of mine said, well, what about Jesus when he changed water into wine? And she paused for a moment, and I appreciated the honesty of her response. She goes, yeah, I acknowledge he did that, but I really wish he hadn't, really wish he hadn't done that. And so with all those caveats in place, it's important for us to not try to be more orthodox than Jesus is. And to remember that what he does here is good. 
At various times, the Bible, while always encouraging us to refrain from drunkenness, still encourages the use of wine in a responsible way. And that the Messiah, the promise of the Messiah, is this promise of the one who's going to come and bring the best wine. And it's a miracle that demonstrates the fact that the Lord Jesus promises to all of us that trust in Him, that that hope in His death and in His resurrection, the Lord Jesus promises a life everlasting, a wedding feast with the best food and the best drink and the best company and the best host, and that this is our hope forever. Good food, good drink, good host, good company. Praise God. The Christian life is a life of sorrow, but it's also a life of joy. It's a life of feeling the pain of sin in this broken world, and also remembering that God redeems the brokenness of the world through His death and resurrection and promises this marriage feast of the Lamb where Christ Jesus and His bride are going to be joined together forever. And note that this, this changing the water into wine is a sign. That's what verse 11 says. And it's a sign that's potent enough that Jesus' disciples believe in Him. That's what verse 11 says. The disciples recognize that this is a sign and they believe in Him. And this sign points to two important things. The first is, of course, that the Messiah is bringing wine. Jesus is announcing, yeah, that's me. I'm the one that you've been hoping for for generations upon generations. The one that will bring in this marriage feast. It's me. And not only does he bring along wine with him, but he makes it. He creates it. He alone has the ability to change the structure of water to the point that it becomes wine. I mean, the molecular structure of water has changed. It's an act of creation. God has created here. Only God is able to create. And so in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 here, in 12, he shows he's God and he's the Messiah. Now this should make sense to us. John has actually given us an idea that this is what he's going to be talking about. In John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word that's being talked about there in John chapter 1 That's Jesus. So it's saying in the beginning, the word Jesus was with God, and the word Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1 verse 1 is telling us Jesus is God, and Jesus is creator. And in this first miracle, he's demonstrating, I am God. I am the creator. The disciples recognize it. They recognize that it's a sign about who he is, and they believe. And this is a sign for you too. Jesus, when he came to earth, did miracles, miraculous work that only God can do. The sort of miracle that's the creation sort. Only God can do that. And so you and I should see the sign this morning and believe just like the disciples. But that's only the first sign that he gives. He gives a second one after he cleanses the temple. The second one is a funeral sign. The first sign was this wedding sign. The second one is the funeral sign. The Lord Jesus cleanses the temple. He comes in zeal for the house of the Lord, consumes him, and he cleanses the temple. I've got to tell you, as I was preparing this sermon, I was, I, I was convicted as I read this section of Scripture. 
Jesus came into the temple and was disgusted by how people had corrupted the worship of his heavenly Father. And so he cleansed the temple. I was convicted. I was convicted in this way. I read this and I thought, you know, I know that there are all manner of ways that I might want to corrupt the worship of God just in my own thinking, in my own living, in my own experience of church. And it left me thinking, how is it that I do that? I mean, it's easy for me to see it here in the temple. You know, they've, the temple was this place of worship. They changed it into this place of profit. It became big business. I remember because of all that, whenever there were fundraisers, my mom never let me talk to people in church about it. She's like, don't sell anything in church, Derek. I was like, why? And she was like, John chapter 2, when we read it, I've never, never sold any pizzas for cadets you know, in, in church because of that. Not once. I was thankful my mom talked about that because, uh, you know, I, I don't want to corrupt the worship of God, but there are different ways that we might do that. I remember I was interviewing for different churches. There was one church in another part of the country that, uh, that wanted me to come be their pastor. Their, their chair of the search committee picked me up from the airport when I flew in to talk to their search committee, and she said, yeah, you know, um, I know you're a preacher, but I, I've got to be honest. I, I really think church would be better if instead of a sermon, we could just have a concert. Maybe a cl- I love classical music. It'd be great if we could just bring in a, a classical band. We could have a concerto for the course of the worship service. No one would be uncomfortable. No one would have to hear anything that might put them off. We could all go home. We could have you know, a nice experience on Sunday morning. I would love if church could be more like that. And I remember saying, I, I think you're interviewing the wrong guy for this position here. I remember even as a seminarian being like, that's not right. Like to try to get rid of the worship, to try to get rid of the scripture, to try to get rid of the prayer and instead have just a, a nice concert. Now, if you want to go to a concert, that's great. But, you know, I'll go with you. But not if it displaces the preaching of the gospel. Not if it displaces the worship of God's people. Not if it gets rid of the prayers of the people. Not if it gets rid of church. But as I've read this, I was like, God, what are the ways that I might, would you convict me of any place that I might be corrupting the true worship of the Lord God, Jesus? Would you convict me of that? And would you drive it out of me? I'm hoping that that might be your prayer this morning too. And Jesus demonstrates that while he is gentle and lowly, humble and the prince of peace, That humility and gentleness is not in conflict with him taking drastic, strong action to preserve true worship. And so he makes this whip and drives out the money changers. And the people ask, I think, a really understated question. You know, like, after Jesus has just done that, they're like, so what sign do you give us for driving people out of the temple like that? That seems pretty reasonable to me. All right, you've just whipped people out of the temple. Could, you, could we just ask one follow-up question? What sign do you give us that would let you do that? And isn't Jesus' response amazing? You want a sign? You're going to destroy this temple, and in three days, in three days, I'm going to build it again. In three days, I'm going to rise it up. And the Bible helps us in this. The Bible tells us, well, he was talking about the temple of his body. 
Now that makes it an even more remarkable claim, doesn't it? The people who asked him were rightly confused. They're like, all right, this took 46 years. You're one guy. You're going to build it in three days? And Jesus is like, oh, I'm talking about my own body, which is a more remarkable claim. Not only is Jesus saying, I can build super fast. Jesus is saying this. You know, the place where you should worship God is me. That's what Jesus is saying. And again, this continues the themes that have been present in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1 talks about how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the word that is in Greek is, is tabernacled among us. If you've ever read the King James Version, that's the word that's used. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's a distinct connection to the fact that in the Old Testament, Moses built this tabernacle, and that is where the glory of God dwelt and that's where the people were supposed to worship. And what Jesus is saying is, oh yeah, yeah, the worship of God should take place not in this temple anymore, not in the tabernacle, but it should happen through me. That's what Jesus is saying. The glory of God dwells in Jesus, according to Jesus in this section of Scripture. That is remarkable. And then he also makes a stunning prophecy. Not only is the temple my body, not only is Jesus saying that, he's saying, you're going to kill me, and I'm not going to stay dead. Three days later, I'm going to get up. I'm going to rise up again. I've got to tell you, that is an astounding, astounding thing for Jesus to say. Any true worship of God needs to come through me, Jesus is saying, and you will kill me, and then I'm going to get out of the grave three days later. That's the second sign. You want a sign? I'm going to die and not stay dead. Oh yeah, and if you want to worship the Father, you got to worship me. Wow. That's the sign for us today. If you're somebody who right now is wondering, God, if you would just give me a sign, I would see and believe. Let me tell you that at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he said, here's the sign, and if you can see this, you're going to understand, and you'll believe. I'm going to die and rise from the dead. Let me testify to you today. Jesus died. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And then he ascended into heaven, and he's going to come back. And if you're hoping for a sign, I want to encourage you to look to his cross and look to his empty grave and to realize that this is sign enough to testify to who he is. And the disciples recognized that that's the sign he was talking about. And after his resurrection, they believed the Scripture and the Word of Jesus. And if you see these two signs today, they should be sufficient to understand who Jesus is and to believe in Him and to believe in the words that He's spoken. It's hard for us to believe because we have the standard issue human heart. 
And as the text comes to a conclusion, we see in these last couple of verses, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. As the passage comes to a conclusion, it ends by telling us that Jesus knows what's in that standard issue human heart. He knows that we are people who are not to be trusted, who fluctuate, who are up and down, who are committed one day and the next day aren't around, who are all in in kindness one day and then all in in cruelty the next day. And so he doesn't entrust himself to the people. He knows what's in our hearts. Ah, but First John tells us that God's greater than our heart knowing how fickle we are and how tempted we are to disbelief. Jesus has given to us these enduring signs. Jesus is God. Jesus is alive. And no one will put Jesus back into the tomb. And if you see those signs, then my prayer today is that you and I will be just like the crowd. I believe. I believe. I believe. A disciple of Jesus sees the signs and they open up their eyes and they believe. Jesus is God. He's alive. Let's believe Him together. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You so much for Jesus and we pray that we might see these signs and believe that Jesus, that Jesus is God. Oh Lord, we recognize our own heart, how fickle our hearts are. And we pray that we might see these great signs and that we might believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the opportunity now to come to the table of the Lord. We have the opportunity to have communion together. I know that there are cups that are set out just outside the sanctuary, and if you haven't had a chance to grab one yet, uh, feel free to go and do that right now, because soon we're going to be participating together in the Lord's Supper. Now the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after dinner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a pretty awesome thing that we get the opportunity to do. That we get to have this time of remembrance. Knowing that Jesus' body was given for you. For the forgiveness, forgiveness of your sins. Knowing that He shed His blood on the cross. And that it was for you. And so if you're somebody that trusts in Jesus... If you've testified to the fact that you trust in Him alone for your salvation, you, Christian, are invited to participate 
in this wonderful sacrament, this mystery, this beautiful retelling of the gospel that Jesus gave himself for you and for me for the complete forgiveness of all of our sins. And so I'm going to invite you to take this. I've been assured that these are easy open containers. You're invited to take the, uh, the top off of this, this wafer here. You're going to take the bread. And I'm going to give everybody a second to do that so that we can together, so we can together take and eat and remember and believe that the body of the Lord Jesus was given for the complete forgiveness of all of your sins. And then let's eat together. And then, would you remove the top and keep upright the cup? Now let's take and drink and let's remember and believe that the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was shed for the complete forgiveness of all of your sins. Let's drink together now. I remember when I was a high school student, I just made a profession of faith and I had communion a few times. And I was watching as we were having communion at Brookfield Christian Reformed Church where I was a member. The pastor, you know, first gave all the elements to the elders. The elders served the congregation. The pastor served the elders. And then one elder, it was actually it was my father, went to the pastor and gave him communion and said, you know, this is uh, the body of Christ for you, Peter. It's the blood of Christ for you, Peter. And he ate and he drank and he said, Hallelujah. I remember that as a student, I was so moved by the rejoicing of my own pastor as he had the Lord's Supper. And so what I'm going to ask for us all to do now who have had communion together is to just say, Hallelujah. So let's do that now. Hallelujah. Praise God. What a gift that Jesus bled and died to forgive us for all of our sins. Hallelujah.